Hello. It's, uh, yeah, it's been quite some time, I know. Got a backlog of podcasts to put out, and at the same time, this, uh, beautiful backlog of projects that are finishing up that I really can't wait to share with you. So, we've got some really fascinating and kind of unsettling AI projects that are exploring the fine-fingered fringes of that space of opportunity, delight, and dread. There's a new book drop that includes a card-collecting mechanic. Super excited about that one. Also trying to figure out... <laughs> How I describe it. There are a ton of office hour updates and notes. There was Super Seminar, which some of you probably heard about, some of you probably came to, which had a test run of three sessions last month, which were absolutely fantastic. I'm just scrambling now to get the reports out for those attendees. We did, uh, see, first one was Imagination Futures with Parsons and Charlesworth, Dr. Delfina Fantini van Dittmar, and Professor Sarah Coderen. Then we did Number two is Foresight Futures with Radar Dow, Rada Mystery, and Elliot Montgomery. That one was also just kind of mind exploding. And then Fiction Futures with Madeline Ashby and Andrew Dana Hudson, talking about the ways in which fiction shapes our imagination. I've also put two new box sets on the shop over at shop.nearfuturelaboratory.com, which should, you know, give you a chance to, uh, to get a better deal on the purchases. And there's one thing I want to say about the shop. You're probably getting more transactional retail style emails from me. They are from me. And that's because the shop is the really the second most viable way for you to get involved, not just intellectually, but materially with the near future laboratory. And so what do I mean by that? Well, everything you get on the shop also comes with community. That's right. Get something on the shop and get an invitation to the near future laboratory discord. That's the main hub for conversations, shared resources, office hours, and opportunities to get involved with projects. Right now we have like, I think five projects running. Actually, no, that would be three because one is fully finished and printed and almost ready to go to the shop. And one just got handed off for editorial review. That one in particular, I'm really excited about. It's this magazine from the future of filmed entertainment, basically like a variety magazine, that Hollywood staple, but for some possible future. That was awesome and daunting and completely unsettling to produce. As near the end of the work, there's been this writer and director strike here in Hollywood that I'm sure everyone has already heard about. And so we actually had some... Hollywood writers and directors working on that project as they, I guess, you know, were looking for things to do to keep their creative, creative mind going. So we have the design fiction big box set and the design fiction small box set. Both get you about 23% off the price of buying everything separately. That big box set has the manual, TBD catalog, and the reader's guide to the manual. And the small box set has TBD catalog and the reader's guide. Both are a great deal and a deal that I can offer. And why can I do that? because we do everything here ourselves. There's no middlemen. Well, except for my fantastic shipping partners and even they are tiny middlemen, not some big conglomerate, doesn't really care. I mean, we talk directly with each other just about every day and each is in support of small scale business. Same thing with my fantastic print partners. I mean, for the reader's guide, the latest book, which was a bit of a crash project. I mean, I think it was done maybe in like six weeks. The guy who is in charge of setting up the printing, so this is a guy, not my, you know, the direct guy I was talking to, but the guy who was in part charge of setting up the printing was actually proofreading. And I don't know if that's because he was like nerding out on the material, because it it it's pretty entertaining, I have to say. But he caught some typos, and he just sent, it, sent those notes to me directly, which is kind of amazing. I love that kind of stuff. So when I'm able to take on the extra work down in the ditches of getting printing done, I'm exchanging my time. In some cases, it's, you know, until one or two in the morning or having to get up at four or five in the morning. 
so that I can get more value that can come back to support the studio and more activities and projects. So we're not losing a lot, but we can also afford to give discounts on, on the stuff and have to do it in a, in a very careful and managed way uh, because we don't want to lose money, but we do want you to get involved and get engaged. Oh yeah, one of the things I was able to do because, uh, which which is, you know, again, this value circulation is that I'm, I mean, over, like overwhelmingly excited about the, the, that we were able to offer two scholarships to these two amazing emerging practitioners to allow them to attend fully funded this Design Fiction Imagine Harder Summit uh, that I have organized for later this month in Detroit. And I'll talk more about that on the other side of that event. So for now, check out shop.nearfuturelaboratory.com. Know that when you're buying something, you're not making Jeff Bezos richer. You're supporting all the work that we're doing here right at the edge of the defense of the creative consciousness. Oh, also, uh, another thing is a general seminar, season four, episode three. That's coming up in literally just a few days. That's on Wednesday, September 13th. I'm sitting here on Sunday, the, what is it? Sunday the 10th. So that's just in a few days. And two times, 8 a.m. and 4 p.m. We'll be diving into the future of the org, future of the organization, and tickets are still available over on generalseminar.com. Now, okay, because all these things that have occupied me back here in the studio, I haven't prioritized editing a new episode of the podcast. So I'm going to do something that I've heard other podcasts do, which is a rebroadcast. I'm going to rebroadcast one of my favorite conversations uh, since I started the podcast, which is my chat with Dunn and Raby, Tony Dunn and Fiona Raby, who have been really literally at the edge of the edge of the vanguard of the practice of integrating speculation and design to help us see and feel into possibility and thereby summon forth the important kinds of questions necessary for navigating the turbulent seas of change. Okay, one thing I wanted to share with you, one of our AI experiments is, uh, I well, I created a little program, a little Python program um, that I can feed into, I can have it ingest uh, a conversation. And after the conversation is ingested, it's kind of freeze dried and I can kind of go back into that conversation and ask that conversation questions. Uh, so this is just a little experiment with building an AI, uh, you know, small language model. And I did it for uh, this conversation I had with Tony and Fiona, fed it into it, and then asked it a bunch of questions about that conversation and got what I thought were like pretty reasonable answers. Um, so I'm going to roll that listen to that, and then that'll be immediately preceding uh, my actual conversation with Tony and Fiona. You can let me know what you think. Okay, here we go. Enjoy. What was the most interesting thing about this conversation? The most interesting aspect of the conversation was the speaker's emphasis on using imagination, fiction and speculative design in their practice. They discussed how in the past, conceptual models were sufficient but now there is more pressure to prototype and make things real. However, when dealing with complex technologies, they had to embrace fiction and modeling instead of prototyping. This led to debates about the ethics of designing beyond what they could actually produce. The speakers reflected on how conceptual work was once sufficient in design but now there is more emphasis on the real and the prototypical. They wondered if this shift happened with the rise of technologies like Arduino, 
Overall, the conversation focused on the importance of speculation in fiction for design practice. How important do you think it is to speculate and use fiction in practice? Speculation and fiction are extremely important in design practice. They provide designers the freedom to explore radical ideas and defamiliarize themselves from the status quo. Speculative design can open up new ways of thinking about the future and expand our collective imagination. Even if speculative designs do not lead to practical changes, they contribute to larger conversations and meaning-making. What is the relevance of speculative design to making the world a more habitable place? Speculative design is relevant to making the world more habitable because it allows us to imagine alternative futures beyond the narrow set of possibilities in the present. By using fiction and imagination, speculative design can represent new visions of how the world could be. Even if these designs do not become reality, they help nourish our collective imagination so that new ideas and possibilities can emerge. Small shifts in how we think about the world can eventually lead to concrete changes. Speculative design also encourages us to question assumptions and see the world through different lenses. This open-mindedness and ability to imagine radical alternatives is crucial to solving complex problems and building a more sustainable future. I have, a, I have a very fond memory of, of going to dinner in, uh, in London. Oh, yes. To dinner. With James. Um, yes, yes. With, 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 there was a, uh, you're talking about James Auger. Yes, yes yeah, yeah. Wow, this yeah. is. I also remember I visited you at Nokia just before you it all changed when I was representing the RCA. Remember, we had this alumni thing. That's and, right. Uh, that was that was maybe the last time. <laughs> yeah, ages ago. Well, it's, it's been it's been exciting to uh, kind of follow your trajectory. And I, first thing I want to say is I'm I was so um, almost like overwhelmed with joy when when you guys um, you know for the RDI. Uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it was uh, it was probably like it was it was a little bit off book because uh, Nick Foster, who you, you know obviously, and and is a dear friend of mine. He kind of he he let us know just like the you know the near future laboratory gang that this was that this was happening and and I saw your names on the on the list and my heart just glowed I couldn't think of <laughs> it in a, in a in almost like a childlike way it's like wow that's that's a, that's amazing and it was it was uh, I felt it very much for for you guys and all that you've done and and the deserved recognition. Um, and at the same time, and it was part of a conversation that I had with Nick, it felt like this pivotal kind of pivotal moment for people who have a nudge of an instinct that the kinds of practice that you do together as, as, a, as, a, as a creative ensemble and that, that you also teach, mm -hmm. it, it felt like, okay, you know, like there's almost like this validation. Yeah, we were delighted too. Yeah, I mean, we were was, very, very excited. Uh, especially by as it. it's... Um, the kind of recognition that comes from within design. So mm -hmm. it's kind of looking more at a trajectory mm -hmm. of, of individuals and kind of recognizing that rather than something just being of the moment. And I think that was really satisfying. And then, you know, it was great that Nick was there as well and then other people we knew. So. But a great, amazing, broad range of people on that list. It was, I think it's a real moment in design where, you know, the recognition of many different practices um, in, on that list. So I thought that was very, very exciting. So we're very proud to be part of that new in-group. It wasn't just industrial design as it was as it started off all that time ago. 
um, there was a lot more broader in terms of, you know, ecologies and, and all sorts of sort of indigenous work and, you know, a real broad range of practices were being represented in design. So I thought that was really, that was very good. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Do, you, do you have any reflections on, on what that, um, that, what might have kind of triggered that? I mean, it's encouraging, but then, what, you know, what, what is the sentiment that maybe is involved, uh, evolving within the, you know, the collectives that, I guess, you know, make up the list? Heard a little bit about how it works, and, and it sounds like there's there's a bit of you know kind of quite serious deliberation and kind of lobbying that that might have to happen, um, you know, in well, order to do, support these. Yeah, kinds. we're new to, the, to it all, so I'm not really sure how it works. So in another year, when we sort of pass, yeah. we'll, we'll we'll let you know how, how it works. I, I do think that with the general instability in the world, mm. um, yeah. the kind of maybe more traditional ways of going about doing design are bumping up against some of their limitations and things that were maybe more marginal a decade ago are being reevaluated and and elements of those kinds of practices as i guess people are starting to see how they could be relevant to the kind of thing we're experiencing now we were just talking the other day that um maybe the whole futures thing is really kind of appropriate for navigating uncertainty and um trying to kind of find pathways through that, but we're kind of living in paradoxical times now. And you maybe need very different strategies for sort of inhabiting that sort of world where things are just not only changing rapidly, but kind of not making sense mm. on all fronts, not making sense, at least by our kind of traditional ways of measuring what sense is. So I think maybe it's not, I mean, who knows, but we kind of think it's maybe we're just part of a larger kind of shift away from more classic ways of trying to interact with the world around us into much more experimental ways but who knows <laughs> wow there's uh there's so much there my mind's just reeling um quite literally it, it's intersecting with a with a bunch of act, things that i i suppose you know myself and others have been trying to do around these topics and the way you framed it is now the, the thing that i'm reeling over is like wait where did these ideas that that um, just literally like this morning, I was I was writing, doing a bit of writing uh, for a, a I, I call it a platform because I think people call things platforms. I'm not sure what else to call it, but this thing called General Seminar, which which I started, uh, I guess it was it was during it was like in the midst of, well, I guess, you know, when when the pandemic was ending the first time um, and I I wanted to have a place where I could talk about some of the things that I was coming across that felt very formative and kind of uh, the way I described it sort of like on the vanguard of cultural consciousness where, and these are things that I'd identified because there was like a lot of uh, confusion and controversy and argumentation. And my thesis was that when humans are kind of at odds with each other, when they're arguing about something um, in, in, a, in quite a, uh, well, I guess the word of the day is like kind of polarized way. And these aren't necessarily political arguments at their core or the, or the kind of flat-footed sense of what politics is, but new ideas, when new ideas are emerging, there's a, there's a, I find that there's a tendency for people to either dig in on what was prior or dig in on what is emerging. And I like things like at that boundary, it's like the in between the two sides of what I see of like the emergence of a kind of future consciousness. And so I started this general seminar thing, um, mostly reflecting on the, the fondest memories that I had of 
grad school was was seminar where you're and particularly seminars where there was it was a it was an emerging idea so it was something that was new on the kind of intellectual landscape and we had one seminar that was just a course number which was a very rare thing to get uh at, at the university of california i mean it took like it could take years to get a course number um so that you could actually get credit for doing something you had to kind of write you know pay and you guys are familiar with these kinds of things it'd be like forming a department or something and it was this course number that the faculty had put together ages ago with such a broad description that you could backfill almost anything into it. And so we were allowed to essentially use that course number to have a seminar, you know, among seven, 12, 14 uh, other graduate students on an emerging topic, something that we picked. And I remember I, 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 myself and a bunch of others said like, hey, we wanted to do, I think it was like postmodern geography, I think was something that was on the, on the cusp, like, um, um, understanding space in, in, in other kinds of ways, spaces occupying kind of social and political dimensions and these kinds of things, not just geography in terms of latitude and longitude, extend the metaphor, I suppose. And I thought that was such a beautiful moment because no one knew what was going on. There was no expert in the room. There was, there was a set of reading and then there was meaning to be made, sense-making to happen in the collective. And so I started the general seminar thing to, to do something similar. It wasn't like semester long kind of thing. It's in, it, it, it was internet time. So like 90 minutes can 16 of us in a seminar context, have a discussion on a topic, no experts, very, you know, a flat round tables the way I described it. And one of the prompts that I used to, to, to spark the, the discussion would be some kind of speculative fiction or design fiction imagine a world in which, and it would usually be something that was, I, I hoped it was, wasn't too complicated where people had to ask questions. So we did one on blockchain because it's like blockchain, like what? I don't get it. What's going on? Tell me more. Um, and so it was the, the prompt was blockchain plus refrigerator. That was it. And that <laughs> spark of the, of the conversation. So, so back to the point that you're making, I think that um, this, this sense that we need new sense-making tools New, new, new frameworks and and approaches and techniques or you know uh, graphs of procedures to maybe try out to understand and see the world in a slightly different way in order to make sense, make meaning of what the heck's going on. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And, and figuring out how as designers we can participate in this along with the many other disciplines doing this from different fronts and in different ways. But that sounds exactly exactly what we do with our teaching <laughs> from day we've always done that we've you know we've always had a sort of question and then and wanted work with our students in order to try and work out no one knowing <laughs> which which way it's going to end or where it's going to come out or and just having that open space so which where people can exchange and think of the current kind of ideas i'm all the way back we did it we did um we would challenge i think user friendliness we did a User unfriendliness, we did. <laughs> it was in the CRD days. In, in the CRD. And ever since, you know, all the time, we're always yeah. constantly looking at. Not that we knew what user unfriendliness was, was, but it's just the starting point to. Which is a beautiful part of this, 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 this approach. Um, and you're also reminding me if I, I could get the history wrong, but I, I feel like when you guys um, started design interactions at the RCA, it had been interaction design. Yeah. And they just yes, had version. Well, I think um, it, be, it had been computer-related design for many years. And the nice thing was it was hard to label yourself 
you know, what were you a computer-related designer? It didn't sound very good. So no one bothered adopting that <laughs> title. That was and then, really good, and then it shifted into interaction design for a few years. And of course, people say, I'm an interaction designer. I want to come to study to be an interaction designer. And had already, in many cases, decided what that was. And so in discussion with the students and, and everyone else, we decided just by flipping it around, you couldn't really call yourself a design, <laughs> a design interactioner. And it got back to that CRD thing again of making the label a little bit more slippery and shifting the focus onto what people were doing and defining their own practice. Now, I think that works. It's, it's good to have a name for the general set of activities that are going on in the department, but it's nice that people can untangle themselves a little bit from the disciplinary label. But uh, yeah, that was a tiny shift, but I think an important one. <laughs> it's sometimes just those little, uh, you, I, I think of them as um, just a, a, a disruptive moment like almost like a like a like a a bunch of dry powder all of a sudden exploding and then people being a little bit kind of wait what just happened sorry what was that in the back there and and, and going getting knocked off a track or the rails that you might be on mm -hmm. and you mentioned the word discipline which was somewhat the, the the notes that i was taking this morning were in preparation for a general seminar on the generalist which has been a topic that uh, in my in my discourse, so I started a discord because that's what one does nowadays. <laughs> um, and there's been it's been a very thoughtful group, um, really curious about what the generalist is. And that kind of sent me down this, this spiral. I, I woke up this morning, I remember it's like, wait, there was that whole, there was that whole thread of, of work that I, I had been, that I had wanted to do when I was at USC on inter un transdisciplinary Kind of approaches and practices which which may have been i was trying to think this morning like um when how i first came across the work that 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 you guys were doing i i honestly don't remember um it, it, I'm, I'm i'm grateful for whatever little spark or link that someone shared with me but it, it feels like there there are all these kind of these important linkages between this idea of the generalist maybe just broadly the non-specialist the person who was able to like kind of hop across and through and wouldn't call themselves, you know, any particular discipline, maybe all of everything simultaneously uh, in, a, in a humble way, I, 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 would, I would expect. Um, and also maybe, and also probably quite confused as to who they are and what they are, like suffering through, um, now, now it's like therapy, suffering through identity crises and confused why someone thinks that they can't do a particular task because they're not that great at Microsoft Office. For example, yeah, I think I think um, I can relate to that entirely. Mm. Uh, living a life of being a generalist. Yeah, I mean, we always struggled in our various disciplines. Fell into architecture, and I did industrial design, and I barely scraped through my degree in Dublin. They wanted to fail me, and. Uh, Luckily, I wrote a thesis that made that impossible. <laughs> but then at the RCA, it went well in our first years, and there was a management shift. And again, I was nearly failed in second year, but thankfully one tutor gave me some excellent advice that enabled me to steer through, and Fiona was constantly getting grief in architecture. And I think um, when, we went, yeah. Yeah, when we went to Japan, we connected with a group of architects there, Keiichi Iria was one of them. And they were much more abroad in their outlook. Um, Keiichi, for example, designed private houses, but he also designed public housing and products and did exhibitions and mass, taught and mass wrote. manufactured housing. So yeah. overlap with industrial design, which is quite mm. interesting. And it kind of made us see a much more open world. And by coincidence at that time, Gillian 
Quentin Smith was setting up computer-related design at the RCA. And when we returned to London, we were you know, eventually able to teach on that program. Then um, I did my PhD there, Fiona did an MPhil, and we participated in the research studio. And it was our first taste in a way of a space where many different disciplines just got together, all kind of rejects from their own disciplines. Yeah, we were all rejects. Psychologists, we didn't fit in. none of us fitted computer in. scientists, we were like a refugee product, graphics, illustration, animation, architecture. People would come and seek yeah. us out because they were misunderstood by their yeah. disciplines. Yeah, and it was just such a rich and uh, amazing environment. I mean, full of friction and complexity and problems. So a high overhead in terms of just occupying that space, but very, very rich as well. And I think that's something we've tried to hold on to um, in our various activities, whether teaching or practice since then. But you know, we've never been experts, you know, we've had to sort of the process of learning, I think. Mm. You know, when Tony took on the professorship at the Royal College, you know, that it was the starting point was what is this biotechnology stuff? You know. You know, designers aren't in that space. There's nobody in the artists were looking at it. Um, but within the design world, that was seen as like, well, you can't get in there and, and wire stuff together with biology. So that's not an activity that designers can do. And we said, well, why not? You know, why can't we imagine? We can't, what can we imagine in those spaces? We have to be there with lumps of flesh and kind of making stuff in the lab. Although now you can do that. There's a lot more bio mm. DIY bio labs around where designers can get in there and do amazing things mm. now. But when we started, there was nothing. And we started from day one with a you know whole gang of students and 10 years worth of kind of like research trying to work out well how do designers and non-experts in this space work and and imagine and create things that are powerful enough to engage others to imagine and you know expand that you know expand that space um you know to many many people to also imagine in that space not just the scientists imagine you know what that space can be but a multiple set of imaginations on that space I think that that multiplicity is really important. Even in our classes here we, at Parsons, at the new school, we primarily have design students from all disciplines, but then we have students from anthropology or philosophy or politics as well. Really interesting not to try and homogenize you know, the class into one multidisciplinary or transdisciplinary um, environment, but to let the individual disciplines mutate and interact in kind of surprising ways, but hanging on to something that people bring with them from their home disciplines. And they're rubbing against each yeah. other. And that's what's the most interesting thing. Yeah. We had these, like your, uh, like the uh, public, uh, the general seminar, this idea that everyone's around a table, they're all, you know, from different backgrounds and there's, they're trying to work out ideas through. And we're all trying to work in this space of trying to understand what makes sense, what gives meaning. And, you know, exactly what you were saying, you know, this is exactly how we practiced all these years in a very similar way. And, you know, with these fears of existential angst and crisis continually. <laughs> that uh... doesn't seem to go away. That seems to be endless, you know. Damn it. You know, Damn it. We've been doing it. It's, yeah, and unfortunately, but uh, you carry that with you. <laughs> I really, I really bad joke. Someone says, uh, so tell me, tell me what it is that you do. I said, you know, like, I really wish, I wish to God I could tell you that I'm an accountant. Because then this conversation, <laughs> but I can't. I <laughs> I know I know how to do accounting, but I'm not an accountant. I also know how to program a computer, but I don't know. Am I a computer programmer? You know, on on and on and on across the list. There was always that moment in design interactions after the first um, term. We had terms rather than semesters there, and where the students would go home for Christmas, and their parents would ask them about what they were doing, and they had that first moment of that realization that they're never going to be able to say 
easily again what they actually do. But I think by talking about projects that people are working on at that moment, it's a kind of way in. If you, if you, and we find that too. If we just describe what we're actually doing at a particular time, we can open up. I that don't space. know. Does that work? <laughs> I'm not sure if it does. You know, we're always in this in-between space when we're trying to formulate things. So it's not always. And then we have moments of clarity and we think, oh, right, we know what we're doing now. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's not clear. Do you ever see or, so uh, you're curious, I, re I realize it's just a title, um, Royal Designer, what, I can't remember what the preposition is, of or for? Royal designer, royal designer for industry, or other yeah, for, industry. for industry. And so, my, my understanding from what you've described and, and what I've read and heard is that that the industry part was, you know, is part of a I imagine like a nineteenth century kind of sense of like, okay, industry, kind of we're making stuff, um, we're not just uh, kind of squirreling away in our in our in our in the in the studio behind the uh, the house of the patron. Kind of doing diagrams by ourselves for weird apparatuses or ideas and that kind of thing. Like it's meant to, in service of, uh, in a, in a very in a very particular context. I dream of a day when the the exemplars of practice that I've seen throughout your career, largely in academia, is not only in academia. So that your students, you know, graduating with, with these insights and perspectives and sort of experiences and open imaginations about what is possible in the world are in industry. And maybe, maybe, maybe not the kind of industry that necessarily exists now in the um, go on LinkedIn and find a job kind of industry. Not like, okay, there's your workstation. That's where we do, uh, UX research for this particular, these 600 square pixels on this on this website, but where there is a, there's the, the same way in which people, the way you're describing it are, are you know, in a room from, with a bunch of different, uh, maybe completely ortho orthogonal epistemologies and ways of knowing and experiencing and understanding, comprehending the world, sit and open themselves up to the unexpected cross-pollination and the unanticipated moments of like, ah, okay, I think I know something we can try. Like, let's try this in order to uh, find new possible futures, new possible ways of seeing and experiencing the world that are not just about optimizing X, Y, or Z in order to make something more efficient or more practical. Like the day of like the research lab from from the one that, that that I remember kind of you know fondly hearing about like whatever it is bell labs um you know a, across the spectrum those kinds of things and how can we make that happen I, well, I wish yeah, yeah. I, I'm optimistic I think it will happen I'm, I'm sure that there's enough people thinking about this stuff now and exploring it in different ways um in many different generations that I, I, I think things will pop up and emerge. It's just hard to imagine them sitting, as you say, within the existing infrastructure of industry and design and even media and exhibitions, but I'm optimistic. I just wanna go back to what you're saying about this kind of uh, tension between academia and the world out there. 
I think it's nice that things can live in academia mm. and don't have to migrate um, out into other realms that academia, but you know, can contribute and participate in these broader discussions alongside industry, alongside design studios and so on, but maybe offer a degree of freedom that's just not possible at the moment in, in other contexts, at least with ideas and experimentation. So I'd also in that kind of picture you're, you're suggesting, I'd love to see academic labs and studios evolving as well mm. in conversation and dialogue with industry well, they do labs. They do that in science, don't they? And science yes, in I academia has a huge relationship to industry. Yeah. You know, why isn't that happening within academia in the same yeah. way in design? Yeah, there's such separated worlds at the moment. It's amazing. It's, yeah, so yeah. science and technology does it all yeah. the time. I think also as um, designers, I guess, gain PhDs and move into academia, they often, uh, the first thing to go is the practice side, mm. yeah. they embrace uh, the more theory, traditional, yeah, the traditional academic channels of papers and, and things like so that. So we fight all, constantly to bring practice, you know, that practice is still part of the academic discussion and it's, it contributes, you know, the process of making and turning, mm. well, not exactly, yeah, making, even if it's making with words and creating. Um, creating propositions even if they're made in words you know they're they're making kind of a proposition in the world but isn't your general seminar in the near future laboratory aren't you prototyping how such a group might exist in the non-academic environment yeah i i, I suppose we are i, I suppose we are <laughs> oh, we're looking it's, to you it's starting <laughs> yeah <laughs> Oh, good Lord. Yeah, I, I, think, I think groups like, like Superflux, you know, are figuring out how to exist in, in, these, in, among, between, in between these different realms as well. And uh, other groups, I think, are doing it too. And I think it, it may, I'm optimistic about it. I mean, definitely a long way to go, but you can see glimmers of possibilities that certainly weren't there a decade ago. Hmm. I'm, I'm a mentor at the New Museum in the New Inc. Um, um, kind of, which was a sort of startup link between you know it sort of sits between muse museums and sort of new media and um and startup entrepreneurialism and there's something really amazing because i'm in the creative science group and we tend to be a lot more geeky <laughs> and we tend to have loads of kind of like research so you know the people who come into that seem to sort of have the burden but most of them teach as well so they're using the teaching platform to you know to work through their ideas, but then they need external places in which they can publish, because how do you sort of get these ideas out into the world? And it tends to be a lot more through media and installation and things like that. But this, this you know, this link between muse a museum as a public place of publishing, the, the academic environment, and then indust industrial, because they're, they're taught then how to be, you know, ask in the same way that people in industry do startup culture. How does that kind of work? And I'm finding it fascinating to be in this environment. It's a very different environment than I've been used to before. I mean, although there was, RCA was very entrepreneurial. Most people would end up being in their own practices more easily than I think, it, obviously, New York's an incredibly hard place to come out and, and suddenly open a studio. You know, most people are teaching in order to survive. So, you know, I think those kinds of ecologies are really kind of exciting and it, you know we need more sort of partnerships I think in mm. some ways being and it shouldn't sit in either it shouldn't sit purely in academia it shouldn't sit just in the museums you know or, or in, in industry what is that what is mm. that link how can we make more spaces in that space mm. I think that's and these these people are you know they've gone through their mid-careers they're at the beginnings that they're so talented 
and there needs to be more opportunities in that space to to research and to contribute and to you know I see that as a very very exciting kind of space to be and it's outside of academia um, but it's but it's not because they're all teachers <laughs> so it's a kind of a different sort of space I think I think it's evolving I don't think we can go back um, and people are realizing that maybe this um, these shifts are happening everywhere I think in design I'm interested in, in what you think about this you know the futures as a primary framing device for this kind of work that sort of sits outside, let's say, the here and now. And we're finding increasingly in our work, it's, it's a constraint that mm. if we say step out of the here and now and, and want to imagine some kind of thought experiment or what if scenario, it kind of quickly ends up being put in the future, even if we don't intend there. And then once that happens, people want to know how do we get from here to there? And uh, it's a kind of version of today's world. And when so many things aren't right, in today's reality, futures seem to be just perpetuating, perpetuating those issues. So we got. want to kind of jump outside of reality into, I don't know what it is, parallel spaces, imagined worlds and so on. But, and so we find the future is a kind of a constraint at the moment when mm. we're framing our work and we're trying to explore other things. Do you find that in your work or does it facilitate the kind of things you want to do more smoothly or easily? I think I, think I take your point and uh, what it's making me consider is the way in which so uh you know, it's been ongoing conversations about the ways specifically down to the level of like aesthetic representation so i'm talking about in practical terms mm -hmm. what do you show and how do you show it and how do you frame it and mm -hmm. the the uh i take lots of cues from the the ongoing conversations and and the work that nick foster has done on the future mundane and there's something about showing a, a world that feels like you have just stepped to the right a little bit, or maybe maybe timelines got a little bit confused so that the, the again, I'm talking about a very pragmatic, not theoretical aesthetic. What are the objects you're showing? How is it framed? Um, all those kinds of things. And I, I, I find myself drawn to that notion of, there's, there's actually a channel in the Discord. I'm not sure it's appropriately named, but it's, it's where some of these conversations happen. The channel's called Retro Futures. And it's not about showing like old fashioned futures, like, you know, um, old films that were, that were sci those science fiction films or something, but it is about thinking about the, where these timelines um, cross over. And it's almost as if uh, the, the world is, is just slightly defamiliarized. So the, the classic uh, example is, is Nick's little design fiction of uh, the Cricket Crunch cereal. So everything looks like an ordinary, normal kind of breakfast table, but there's this slight tweak to it. And so you're not thinking necessarily that, well, this looks like a very clean, white, austere, cyber-controlled room with, with some UI elements floating in it um, or anything like that. It's, it's something but slightly adjacent. And lately, one of the one of the projects that we've been diving into in the Discord, um, very organically, it was, it was a beautiful kind of talk about like a, a flat round table with a bunch of different people and ideas. We've gone deep into into this solar punk um, as as, a, as an aesthetic genre, and then actually, you know, kind of constructing these worlds. And for it to help me through that, I've just been creating these kinds of uh, these moments in these worlds. Um, as as kind of visual illustrations, and for some reason, I keep putting in this like 1978 Chevy station wagon in, into the world that otherwise, you know, everything else looks like that's oh, a little bit different. You know, that's the the 
the the the other kinds of affordances and apparatuses that you might see are a little bit tweaked, but then there's this old station wagon. And there's I, I see your buck there. Oh yeah, there there he is. There's the station wagon. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm I'm not sure what's going on there. You know that right. that where the intuition came or the instinct to to kind of throw that in there. There's certainly elements of um, of you know other other kinds of uh, I guess you would say like sort of science fiction that for for whatever reason I'm drawn to um, where where yeah. That's really interesting. I think we're probably taking slightly different tact when we want to crank up the estrangement mm. and the defigurization. So there's no mistaking that the scenes we're trying to work around are, are realistic or real or could even be real. And so trying to steer a path between um, maintaining some conceptual usefulness in that we can use these things to think about the world around us, but not drifting so far that they become so strange and weird, you just dismiss them as fantastical or, or a fantasy world. And I think like, like you, and we spend a lot of time thinking about the how, how do we go about doing this? You know, how much detail do we live in? How much leave in an object? How much abstraction do we provide? Um, how much can we strip away from the environment? It's a really interesting space. I think one of our classes here absolutely zooms in on that mm. and the representation of futures um, through design work and, and variety of media. And try, it's surprising how closed our imaginations have become and conditioned to certain images of the future, an extraordinarily narrow range, actually, when you think about it. And the, the effect of that means that once you step just a short distance away from it, something's treated as weird or too far removed from the kind of norm of what the future should look like. And it's really problematic. So a lot of what we're trying to do, I guess, is expand that breadth, at least in the tiny little corner of design that we occupy and allow other kinds of um, representations of, of the world and imagined worlds to kind of enter into design discourse. But it's a really, it creates really interesting tensions and sparks and conversations really, and, and shows you, we've been thinking, it's kind of led us into a space of impossible objects where mm -hmm. how things are deemed impossible. And what we believe. Yeah, it's kind of, has, you know, not always, you know, quite, ulterior motives in kind of constraining the kind of collective imagination often, but the different kinds of impossibility and how they come about and, and how they're used and how you can explore them as designers. And it's kind of a really interesting space for us at the moment. And what's so amazing is now we've had the pandemic, suddenly we see a world completely different that, you know, before the pandemic, things that you would say before would just be dismissed immediately. And now suddenly, you know, so much is being kind of pulled apart and you know, so many shifts going on in the world that suddenly multiple ways forward and starting to appear, I feel. I feel it's very exciting for a younger generation, although, my goodness, what a world they're coming into. But in terms of the, the few, you know, no longer, uh, you know, this mono future, you know, it has to be much broader. It just has to be. And I think that's, that's that, you know, we, we, kept, we grew up in the 60s and, you know, we just jumped on. We loved technology. We were going to the moon. <laughs> you know, we were, we were part of that way. But, and always at the back, there was this niggling doubt, you know, well, we're not that smart, you know, the smart object. You know, we're so not smart. We're so sort of fragile as the human humans. You know, we never quite fitted the technological kind of dream. So, so I think now is a really, really interesting I can time. still remember in 2008 when I realised, you know, the future <laughs> was this extraordinarily fragile concept or, you know, and, and, and the importance of multiple futures when kind of financial crash 
kicked mm. in and really did shake things up and, and, and including these notions of what potential futures were at that time. And uh, yeah, it's, it's yeah. I, I really like this, this notion of the, not just the multiple futures, but also the recognizing the, the external constraints put on the imagination. Um, mm. There was another, another conversation about uh, with, with Nick Foster about the ways in which the future is represented. The, the, it was almost like we wanted to do a project. You know, one of those things where you're just kind of sitting around and if you had an infinite time or like a, a, a huge production team to just summon up like catalog uh, all of the visions of the future videos and identify how uh, similar they are and that the future, mm -hmm. the visions of the future have not changed. And then my, my own, I guess my, my kind of academic uh, instinct around was that has been to consider that we need, we need to learn how to imagine better. Yes. It's almost totally. like uh, I, I want, I, I, I've, I've said this a bunch of times where it's like, there should be um, in in the U.S. I'm not sure what it's like in the U.K. kind of primary school education. There's uh, there's, there's certain tracks, you know, like history, civics, social science, phys ed, you know, all these kinds of things. It's like there should be like imagination. Like I want to be able to take an advanced placement course in high school, just like I took AP calculus and physics for the imagination, and get a good grade, and then go on and be like. I'm, I'm, I'm really good at imagining or something. Well, I, think, I think if you shift it into a civic context and think of the collective imagination, and we talk about the, uh, the environment and how ravished it is, but I think our collective imagination has been trashed. Mm. It's kind of just, it's just smoking. And I think, you know, there's, you wonder how can design culture and these other disciplines and activities help to kind of nourish the collective imagination so that all sorts of unimaginable possibilities start to emerge again, rather than this closing down that we're all experiencing at the moment, where it's just so impossible to imagine our way. But you know, I think the that we were talking about this yesterday, this, this thing about the rivers giving given personhood, mm. and how that one thing, it's a small little detail, obviously, it took a lot of work for the lawyers to mm. sort of work that out. But you know, if you suddenly think of a river as a living thing, and it's equivalent to the a human, you know, that has massive way in which we think about the natural world, you know, so there's just these shifts, one small shift we can really sort of think differently about the things around us and i think what i'm excited about the younger generation now the whole ecological you know thing has really taken hold so you know you can't think out of the ecological way mindset you know it has to be ecological there's no other way you know it, that's it and so you know i really i think that um yeah i find that that this is this you know i think this is a thing that we've been moving towards more I guess is this idea of inner world. How do you shape the kind of imagination? Or nourish it. Nourish it, and, it. And, and yeah, nourish it so that you know it sort of it, it makes the, the reality bigger. Yeah. This, I, you know, I think that what we found is green. obviously as designers, we're trained to kind of shape the world out there, or at least aspire to shape the world out there, even if the powers and reality of design are extraordinarily restricted compared to engineering or science or law or all these other disciplines. But I think if you wonder about how you design for our inner worlds, um, it kind of requires a different set of, of competencies and approaches and so on. And that those shifts that might occur in how we actually look at the world that eventually might lead to more concrete changes, I think are very important too. We've been kind of thinking about that a lot, trying to experiment with that. Um, designing for the worlds we carry around inside us, I guess, rather than 
the world out there or the worlds out there. Yeah, there's something about the, the way in which um, the, the nourishing um, metaphor, I, I like that quite a bit. Maybe being in LA, I, I've oftentimes used the, and it's probably wrong. It probably is like some neurobiologist will tell me that that's not a good metaphor, but I think like the imagination is like a muscle unless you're using it. I must feel like, you know, if there was like CrossFit or, or like a routine you did every morning, just as you do, if you go for like a strenuous walk or, or a ride to get the day going, you did the same thing with your imagination. I don't know what that exercise looks like. I can, it would be fun to imagine, you know, a set of rituals that you do just a little, you know, idea, you know, sh do it like you're describing, like someone gave you a prompt, like um, imagine the tree in your front yard as, as a member of your family, give it a name, give it a history. I don't know what it is. I'm making stuff up now. We, we do something like that in one of <laughs> yeah, the intensives we do. we do where we use um, images that we collect, but strip them of all the kind of uh, labels and so on. And then ask groups to build a sort of a story around the image. What, what is the world? it belongs in or it portrays what might the politics be, the climate, the values and so on. And it's just a way to kind of um, start imagining um, differently, but having at least an anchor back to something concrete that they can evaluate. But it's amazing how difficult, how quickly people feel uncomfortable, like they've left behind reality. And we've even had to frame it as we're only temporarily leaving behind reality. <laughs> we're going to return again. Okay, the world will be the same as we've done. <laughs> but with the lenses, and the lenses are what we can then use, the projects, and the ideas, and the metaphors, and the images, to look with fresh eyes at our um, home reality. But how you even have to frame this, this kind of tension between the real and um, the imagined um, to make it a, a kind of comfortable place to enter is, is quite, it's really surprising, I think. But I do think that sometimes when you, um, when you use words, we can be, we can be very... Um, kind of, you know, there isn't enough language to say the things. And somehow that an image creates more than mm. some of the words you can say. So you can reverse engineer something and describe it differently, but there's so much within an image that's, that, that fuel, can fuel that. So sometimes, so I think this thing about bringing these alternative, you know, so, so suddenly you're not talking generally anymore, because when we all talk generally, we all think very different things, but when you put something down that sort of starts to, you know, you have to create images and, and, and associations that connect with lots of people, you know, in a broad way, but that resonate and, and say more than words. You know, that's, I think that's where in the end, you know, the, the, the skill sets of designer, visual designers can really help kind of push those edges and make them a lot kind of bigger you know, bigger kind of spaces than we can say precisely with words. Or maybe we have to use, we've been talking about this as well, maybe words, the way that we do use words. Yeah. We're think, always inventing, you know, yeah. why don't we invent more words but that I think say, what you just said about language is really important. I think when you think of the words we use to describe futures, fiction, reality, exactly. it's a tiny, tiny little restricted vocabulary. One of the mm. things we're working on at the moment is a, a, a non-standard glossary of the unreal, where we're kind of, pillaging every discipline we can get our hands on and looking for terminology <laughs> that describes unreality, paradoxes, parallel worlds, different shades of reality. It's absolutely fascinating how the vocabulary that's theoretically available for teasing apart um, our different understandings and meanings for many, many different shades of, of this stuff. But of course, many of them are just technical terms like in philosophy or, or even in quantum theory. But it is interesting to wonder how much of those we could start to bring into design to expand the vocabulary for talking about imaginative work, 
fictional work, future speculation, and these related ideas. Yeah, there's there's something you know these these other things that you're describing are helping to me to understand some of the practices around creating new different kinds of meaning that then lead to you know different understandings of possibility whether that you know whether that possibility becomes uh, you talk about in the future context or other things the the words thing is is beautiful I, i'm 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 a big fan of sometimes accidentally inventing words just because they sound like they belong someplace. Um, and I blame that on Montessori school. It's just that <laughs> ability, you know, or th that encouragement just to kind of be in the world and uh, don't almost, almost like, you know, conjure up knowledge, Br mm -hmm. you know, bring it into being through, through forth of like imagination and making new words. And those new words, I think, you know, for one of the things that I find powerful about it is that, it introduces a question. So someone's gonna be like, wait, what? And that wait, what is the start of a conversation that allows you to kind of unpack that thing. Whereas if you just said a traditional accounting term or whatever, yeah. you know, something from a, from that's well-established and the meaning is like rock solid and it's not gonna go anywhere. It becomes uh, more difficult to imagine otherwise. Yeah, I think um, it's, it's defamiliarization in the classic literary sense where you're playing with language to get people to pause and unpack and I, I think there's, there's so much in there I think what you're saying about meaning making is is key I mean that's something we feel too it's not about creating futures to sort of offer pathways or options that we can somehow choose or impose a preferred future on someone but to try and make meaning out of the kind of world that we're um, finding ourselves flopping about in and to contribute to a larger conversation. So it's how I think that's one of the reasons we're trying to untangle some of our work from the futures framework is to get this less instrumentalist kind of approach. So it can become about meaning making and, and contributing to conversations rather than plotting pathways. I mean, we find with our work sometimes people just take it so literally, like this is a proposal that we want to impose on the world. Um, and rather than these are a set of ideas expressed through design that can feed into a conversation, maybe they can be rejected or lead to other possibilities. And I think when we explore aesthetics, we're also trying to do that in a way that makes that kind of fairly obvious. These are not realistic. They're kind of ideas made uh, concrete in some way. But it's, it's an interesting space to think about. I mean, that's one of the luxuries, I guess, of being in an academic environment because we're involved in teaching. In a way, it, it is important to think through these things. We so have that you to can, make things up. We have to, otherwise you wouldn't be able to sort of but, progress ideas. But you I think also to. trying to think about the details of this stuff and how it works and what doesn't mm, work and, and how meaning is formed and, and meaninglessness and so on. It's kind, of, it's kind of interesting. That's why teaching, I guess, is such an interesting thing in relation to this. But, you know, I think that living in Japan was a key moment for us. We lived in Tokyo straight after we graduated the Royal College. And, you know, there was a whole... Um, Kind of way in which it was like living in a completely different reality of everything was you know not what we all in different places and i was going back to this idea of that you know when we, we used to translate help translate you know put, put things into good english and sometimes some of the phrases were so beautiful and poetic didn't want to put it into good english <laughs> they were better and yet that wasn't good english but you know but it said more it said much much more and i think that mm. uh, that was a space where you know, that, and I just remember those those mm. ways. We still play with some some phrases that we love because they're just kind of not, a bit just, nutty, but they say a lot. Mm. Mm.
Yeah. That's beautiful stuff. Tell me about speculative design. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to hear? Yeah, yeah, say more. Um, how did you how did you come to that as a as a way of framing your ideas and and your and your work? I don't know, to be honest. It's kind of emerged through multiple pathways, multiple conversations, many ideas. I mean, I think I think any one way of, of describing it is is really fake you know it's kind of maybe convenient to say that but in reality you know, but we try not to use it i think that originally one of the things we wonder about is i mean from way back when we were doing um even critical design work in the 90s we were using the term speculative products and speculative objects because they obviously didn't they weren't meant to fit existing reality but some alternative reality it wasn't necessarily about futures at that point they're just an alternative reality. They just didn't fit. And that was part of their function. I wonder sometimes if in design interactions, when we were spending so much time interacting with scientists, um, developing technologies and laboratories, especially around synthetic biology, that maybe didn't actually exist or barely existed. And so when we were trying to explore what their implications might be once they um, were produced in the real world, you just inevitably went into the fictional space as you do in science fiction. And that's just the space we found ourselves occupying. But I think another, I was thinking back recently to when we were students at the RCA in the late eighties, all the work was conceptual. It was speculative, but no one even called it that. It was just, this is what you did. We're in industrial design. There was an industrial design engineering department next to us. They made stuff work. Uh, we made ideas into design proposals. And I wonder when this separation between fiction in design mm -hmm. started to bubble up. And now this is completely, talk about speculation, this really is speculation. I wonder if it had something to do with Arduino. And once these kinds of things entered into, now this is hyper-ex speculation, maybe even fantasy. But once this kind of entered into design education, the real became mm -hmm. a kind of very powerful currency in design education to make stuff real, to, to program, to prototype to build and certainly in the world we're in in design that wasn't an issue up to then you couldn't make things real you wouldn't even try you'd make a model and the model could be quite conceptual it could be aesthetically very interesting abstracted and so on but once Arduino arrived on the scene I think the stamp and pick chips and things like that mm. beforehand suddenly making models was kind of wrong it was faking it it was mm. cheating it was not quite going the full distance. It doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Even worse. And we we would we were, we made all yeah. of our prototypes and, uh, work at the beginning. Yeah, Everything we, yeah. works. And then the idea of it being not real started to come about. You know, it, it's it's and uh, I wonder if deep down inside us, an interest in speculation is kind of tied up with those kinds of ideas about embracing the unreal, and celebrating it in some way and naming it, uh, you know, we named it speculative design, you, you, you call it design fiction, there's discursive design, I guess there are many, many ways of talking about these ways of going about doing design. But recently, I think we've just been thinking, you know, it's just fiction, mm. which I know you've been thinking about for a long time, but treating fiction as fiction, uh, just as in literature or something like that, it's, it's not trying to pretend to be anything or to do anything else other than do what fictions can do. 
And uh, I think that's, um, and not even calling it fiction, but I think way back in the early days, that's what it was. A conceptual model was clearly a conceptual model. It's it didn't need a big. Conceptual design. No, it wasn't called name. anything. It, it was called just anything. called. That's what designers I'm, did. I'm designing stuff that doesn't exist yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm getting a degree in. And uh, people would come and look and say, oh, this is great. This is stuff that doesn't exist yet, but we really like it. And it, it, there was no need for heavy framing and complex narratives and uh, yeah. conceptual apparatus and bending over backwards to try and say why this stuff isn't real. Anyway, that, that's really that's really interesting um, that you mentioned that again. It kind of it, it, you draw me back to to my to my early morning um, notes this morning, where I came across a a book um, called it was like Inter Trans Undisciplinary Design, something like that. And essentially, it's it's kind of a beautiful catalog of what I would what I would refer to as yeah, Arduino Renaissance era esque kind of web 1.0-ish sort of at that that day when when I think you know networked cultures allowed the sharing of ideas and code and like oh there's this thing called Arduino and it wasn't a mysterious thing that you just you you happen to know someone you could find it quite easily and find out knowledge about it and there was Ivrea and IBM which I know still exists was you know all these kinds of institutions of where you had this thing where you could build a thing and also just the fluency and being able to develop um, other kinds of technologies, whether that's just doing something weird and wacky in a web browser, um, or you know, Flash back in the day, or whatever, you could articulate your ideas and represent them in a kind of instrumental fashion, not as a, uh, as I guess what you're describing is what design used to do, which is used to do make things that were kind of provocations in a less instrumented way, and also models rather than prototypes. To, um, to explain the distinction. Yeah, I think that's something we've been wondering about recently. When you make it, and again, this is obviously not objective, it's our kind of, <laughs> our opinion, but with prototypes, I think it's like you're testing the idea against reality. Yeah. Literally, does it work? It could be a chair, can it take my weight? It could be a, um, an electronic um, process. But with a, and, and with a model, obviously, it's kind of embodying an idea, a theory, a hypothesis in something. It could be an abstract model or a tangible model. And we're finding that if we, Work, if we think of our work as models, it gives us a lot more freedom in literally modeling ideas, both in the aesthetic dimension and in this is they're just a model. They sit in the physical world, but they're referencing a set of ideas where somehow with a prototype, it's almost too firmly rooted in the existing world. And I think referencing back to those early days in design, models were the currency. Mm, yeah. I don't think you'd really, you might prototype, if you're a furniture designer, of course, I think you'd you'd be prototyping and building stuff for real. But as an industrial designer dealing with electronics, that just wasn't possible in the late 80s. But I did wonder too, just picking up on that idea again of, of what you were saying about, pro, you know, you, you could just build it and test your ideas. When we were doing a lot of electronic work, especially when we were in computer-related design, we were prototyping, not mm -hmm. us personally, but working with engineers and so on and making things work even though the ideas to us were still speculative, like the placebo project, yeah. these objects responded to electromagnetic fields and some of them had electronic elements that worked. But once we started to become interested in biotechnology, there was just no way of being able to prototype it at that time, around 2000 and make it. So you, you had to kind of go back to modeling again and scenario making and visual representations and I wonder if it's got something to do too with the level of complexity of technologies you're dealing with and also your own skill set and expertise 
And we definitely felt if we stuck with the idea that coming out of an interaction design culture, things should work or at least be prototyped, it would really restrict the kind of technologies we could engage with. And if we wanted to move beyond the digital in, in design interactions specifically, and in, start exploring the biotechnological, we had to embrace fiction or modeling or, or the conceptual stuff and leave behind this need to um, only work with stuff you could literally make, which was pretty restrictive. And that in itself caused lots of arguments and tension and almost around the ethics of um, designing and, and going beyond what you yourself can actually prototype, both the yeah. pros and the cons. Yeah, that, that's, very, that's very resonant. I'm just thinking back to some projects that I did with the complexity of the consciousness of both a designer and an engineer, seeing something and recognizing its possibility for existing, you know, as a prototype and mm -hmm. wanting to pull on that, uh, the, almost like what my, my heart and instincts is like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to just make that thing real? Wouldn't it be cool to like kind of get CAD open and start designing the circuit and, uh, and the, and the, the joy that, you know, kind of slightly peculiar generalist uh, joy of going through large catalogs of parts and, and studying them and understanding and almost entering into their worlds. Like I look at, you know, like a big thick, like mouse or digi key catalog as like, as, as, as this entry point to these worlds, I look at it as almost like a kind of encyclopedia of like another, another other possible worlds, you know, each chip with this description about what it can do. And especially as the things get more sophisticated, can you imagine all the worlds that this thing could exist in and how it could create these, not things that they expect that the manufacturer expects. So we expect people just going to make a, um, a wrist warm timepiece with it. But I started imagining the other things that it could be. I think that's really interesting. I mean, in industrial design and architecture too, that, that's the main activity is specifying every little working mm -hmm. part, not on paper, but originally on paper. And actually when I was referring earlier to how I survived my master's degree, I was doing these quite conceptual products and that needed to be more real. And my tutor, who was a, a designer IDO at that time, just said, do these sections, work out every component, show how the circuit boards sit, what are the screws that go through it, blah, blah, blah. And it was by doing that that in the end, these quite conceptual pieces were able to pass through. And in a way that is classic design, you do the specification drawings without actually, you have to look up all these catalogs you're talking about, which are fascinating, and then integrate those components um, into your drawings. But when you were talking there, it also made me wonder about accessibility. And again, the skills that are required and the budgets to make things real versus speculating mm -hmm. where, you know, with pieces of paper, and pencil, you can kind of imagine bits worlds. of wood painted, bits of wood and cardboard, <laughs> and make models. And there's our, a kind of robots were bits of wood painted. Yeah. But then, well, they were still required budgets, but you mm. know, there's a kind of Tiny. interesting thing there too about, um, you know, as the imagination, you know, how do you make it more comfortable to live in an imaginative realm where it's natural to just start making? Like you talked earlier about imaginationary imagination being a stream in education but when you see all these hacker workshops and things you know what would the imaginative equi equivalent be of just learning to access your imagination in very free and fluid ways and then giving it expression either through words or through joints and so on um, and it would be a lot less require a lot less resources than uh, endless uh, technological apparatus it's a uh, yeah, interesting space, prototyping mm. and making things real. Yeah. But I think Jonas' background's in architecture. And um, of course, 
you know, you, you can't make buildings yourself. Right. And there seems to be much more comfortableness with the speculative dimension sure. of, um, of practice. And uh, maybe, you know, that's why there is this hundreds of years tradition of dealing with the concepts only and ideas or paper architecture, I guess, as it's called. And accepting that some people might even argue that architecture is the bit, everything except the building. It's all the ideas, the thoughts, the meanings, and so on. And I guess in design, we don't have that distinction. The, 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 there isn't an, the conceptual bit can't be abstracted, or maybe that becomes art, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I'm, I'm um, heavily influenced uh, by particularly like mid-century, you know, um, Super Studio Archigram, I've been I've gone on a super deep dive into Jan Kaplicki's uh, work mm -hmm. and 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 the the ways the work itself, but you know it's just fascinating and beautiful to look at. But also their way of representing these worlds, just you know through beautiful collage, that is, that is just like you know to me, I look at it and it's just it feels like a a kind of stroke of genius to represent these, you know, completely almost, you know, like the worlds that you have to dive into in order to even begin to decipher or let the stories be told to you through through the technique and, and the approach. And I, I, I did, um, I haven't, I haven't released it yet. I'm still still working on a, um, a, a podcast with a, with someone who does um, uh, futures, um, she's named uh, Radha Mystery. She's uh, like strategic foresight at AutoCAD. And one of the fascinating parts of our conversation was her backgrounds in architecture and also um, suffered uh, mightily in, in her education, just couldn't, you know, wouldn't do what she was told, that kind of thing, just, just off the hook, but, but um, recognize the power of this, you know, essentially world building as, as, as a way of understanding architecture as, as a, an important aspect and factor in what she went on to do um, subsequently. It's really fascinating, as you say, the um, richness of the different kinds of representation, even if you're just talking about drawings. And uh, again, tapping into the industrial design world, how the tradition of models, again, is a kind of hyper-realism, uh, maybe because everything's one-to-one, -one, I don't know. But when you look at architectural models of just houses even, they're all abstracted to some extent. They're made from non-realistic materials. The model becomes a thing in itself, often a very beautiful and evocative thing. And the, um, that sits alongside these drawings. And that, again, I think the model versus the prototype can open up some very interesting aesthetic possibilities that leads into the kind of ideas we're interested in around estrangement and defamiliarization that we're also trying to explore at the moment. Um, I think that's one of the exciting things about design is there's still, it's so relatively young that there are so many interesting possibilities to explore in it. Um, you know, it's gonna be a long time, I think, before it solidifies into a well-established uh, field, or maybe it will disappear before then. Could <laughs> <laughs> um, we go back to, to a phrase that you used earlier when we were, you said, um, when fiction does what fiction does or something to the effect, like what is, in, in, as you were saying that, what were you thinking of as fiction? What does it do? I think it's fiction as fiction. So often, you know, you think of fiction as a kind of, you're using fiction to talk about the future Mm -hmm. or using fiction to talk about a, a product that doesn't exist yet, like a concept car or something like that, to sell it or, or promote it. But when you just say it's purely fiction, its, it's sole purpose is to, be, to give form to an idea that maybe is to, allows us to explore um, different possibilities for meaning or something. It's, I think it's trying to strip away all these kind of 
secondary uses for fiction that legitimize it and just say if it's if you're designing things that really are just made up what kind of things can you do with that that might be different or interesting from other media is are there possibilities for purely fictional design that um you know that's a better title <laughs> well you're closer <laughs> than us with your yeah. design fiction but design I, fiction, <laughs> I still think the fictional aspect is crucial yeah. We, we, and I, so I think obviously in fiction, you know, people talk about speculative fiction, which is one of the attractions for us to the term speculative. It was much broader than science fiction, and at least in our minds, included um, science fiction amongst very other kinds. But over the years, it seems to now have really become tightly bonded to futures, and speculation and futures are almost interchangeable. And I think for us, that yeah, that's a bit disappointing. You know, there's there's so many. So I think when we say fiction as fiction. There are there's thought experiments, possible world theory and philosophy, counterfactuals, Uchronia, there's heterotopias. There are so many other ways of um, approaching speculative thought um, before it's expressed as design. And I guess that's one of the things we're trying to explore at the moment. But we have a lovely essay that we give the students, which is from Ursula Le Guin, which is all about her saying that she's, she just lies. She, as, as a writer, as a writer, you know that's what she does, and that no, don't take her seriously. She's lying to you all the time. But, that's what fiction is. But I think she's also. It was written in the seventies, and I think she's also critiquing the kind of extrapolative nature of certain futures, where if you start in the present and extrapolate, obviously it's it's still a version of the present. Whereas as a writer, she can just step outside of that and construct an imaginary world. And I think that's also what we mean by fiction as pure fiction, you're not trying to link it by any um, rational means to the existing world, but you're simply creating an imagined world that may or may not be interesting, may, may or may not help us think about certain things. But I think this all sounds like it's uh, really fantastical. And I think the point to be made is we still, because we've, we've, been, we've come from backgrounds where design is useful. So, you know, it's embodied in, in our entire being. So even though we're looking at these kind of fictions, so to speak, we still think they have to be useful. <laughs> and there's something in us that, that won't allow it to, us to just float off and just, they just exist for, their, for themselves. I, I, I don't, Tony and I don't, definitely don't think they should just be in the world um, just because they can be. I think we always want to sort of make it useful, yeah. you know, be put somewhere to maybe be put the, to use. Maybe the uses are less practical now. Yeah, maybe the uses are less practical. Do you ever, I'm curious if you ever feel when you're smiling internally or maybe like literally smiling at some work that you're, a project that you're pursuing or an idea that you have, is there ever a moment where it feels like, ah, oh, this would be so self-indulgent to do? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't think I don't know. I don't think the things we're doing we would think it's self-indulgent. But I think there are moments when we think if we went down that route, yeah. that could be self-indulgent. Or maybe too esoteric mm. or irrelevant or so hard to explain, it's kind of pointless. Yeah. Mm. I, I think I think so, maybe that's it. Is it relevant? Is it yeah. rele relevancy? I think is yeah. part. Yeah. You know, but if it doesn't feel like it's relevant, then that feels for me. To some larger conversation. Yeah. I think we it, want it to be. So rather than trying to make it relevant to a problem or something that needs to be solved or fixed or addressed, I think increasingly we're thinking, are these ideas we're working on relevant to conversations that are going on and can we contribute in some way from a design angle that maybe offers hopefully something interesting and different from other disciplinary mm. perspectives. But I think, um, I think yeah, the self-indulgence thing is interesting. I think 
like I said, I think we'd stand sometimes on an edge and say, maybe if we went that way, we're starting to go in that direction. But often I think it would be because we no longer really know what we're doing. <laughs> it could seem like it's just self, it's just indulging in our whims yeah. rather than trying to connect with some ongoing conversational set of ideas that hopefully still have some value beyond our personal interests. I do think for us, we want to feel our, our thinking ideas and so on are attached to even a conceptual or intellectual agenda. It doesn't have to be practical. But I think if we can't see those connections, probably at that point we'd feel, I don't think we'd frame it as indulgent. We just think this isn't really going anywhere and maybe it's time to back up yeah. and go off in a direction. But I, but I think there is this constant tension anyway. And we find it with the, the, with the students that yeah. this, you know, if they step too far away from reality, then they think it's self-indulgent, mm. but they don't realize they have to step a little bit far enough away to actually see Great something to, to see something differently yeah. so we always talk about this elastic you know you've got this elastic and you're trying you know you're 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 mad, you, immediately you'll be back you know don't worry reality's there you'll be back that's so right how to sort of how yeah, to sort incredible of incredible gravitational to, pull of the real as that's the thing yeah. that, so i think there's that real tension between you know is that self-indulgent mm. because in some ways it's it's like something the, you've got you know, to break from. You've got to break from the real. I think for me, for, for mental health issues. I think we visit think the unreal. To, we to, visit the unreal and then return. Yeah, maybe yeah. that's it. So you're yeah. always going to return back. Yeah. Not, I mean, we. It's I, not a one-way ticket. That but be. I don't know. We, I think yeah. we end, we always say, "Oh, I wish we could kind of like float off and just get a studio and just make some nice things." Oh, <laughs> we oh, would yes. love to do that. You know, it's a fantasy, but that's never going to happen. I don't, why? Why doesn't that happen? Why can't we just kind of like? Go well, I think that's back to the point I was saying earlier. Like that's that's my that's my dream. You know, and and I, I know that it's gonna, that there are. There, there are aspects of reality that will that will make it not so untethered that you're you become uh, um, so distanced from the real that when people visit you, they're like oh my god I think you need to get a haircut and uh, <laughs> get yourself together you should eat more and or whatever but that that a place where that that kind of that that kind of expansive um, activity where you are able to almost coming coming with a, with a certain confidence like no 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 this will this will get real but we, we need this time in order to uh, you know spin off into these other worlds and we can keep coming back like a, almost like a you know an orbit but sometimes you're closer to yeah. the planet and sometimes you're much further away and when you're out there everything else seems quite different you look back sorry camera you look back at a, at a telescope and it uh, and and the world like looks you know smaller or different or some somehow um, you know looks otherwise and then when you come back you find the connections to that and that's that facility yeah. that I want to maybe as you yeah. said you're very encouraging say like I think you're building it it's happening it's it's around <laughs> sounds know. like that to us yeah there was an interview where I was in an the other day and the one of it was actually co-organized but one of the participants was um, Metahaven who co-organized the graphic design artistic collective. And in their introduction, I can't remember the exact words, but they were you know, the really nice uh, phrase where they were talking about how in a certain moment due to a piece of work, something about the world changed, but nothing in the world changed. Mm. And I think it's this thing that we're talking about, the way you see the world differently as a result of encountering a piece of work, yeah. uh, even though physically everything is still as it was before. And I think these shifts in perception, perspective, whatever you want to call it, are really important and kind of overlooked as we 
fixate on physically changing the world. Um, and sometimes, like Fiona said, by suddenly seeing rivers not as um, stuff, there's kind of uh, other kinds of beings with different uh, sets, you know, with rights that are equivalent to our own and so on. The river's still there as it always was, but now we're sort of relating to it in such a radically different way that there is a change on how we live our lives. So, um, yeah. Yeah, great stuff. I just want to um, ask one more question. Can you just describe your current situation there at Parsons? Okay. Um, basically, we uh, co-direct um, a lab called the Design Reality Studio, and uh, it offers classes and it's a place where we can collaborate with other faculty and do design-led um, projects, research projects, I guess. And through this lab, we offer a number of classes um, that are open to students across the university, although we primarily get design students, we always get a few from other areas like music or performance, philosophy, um, anthropology, social science, and so on. And um, one of those classes is co-taught with Professor Dominic Petman, um, looking at, it's called Who Comes After the Human? It's trying to look at the idea of the post-humanities and design and how they might come together in new ways. Another class is called Quantum Common Sense, and it's trying to look into quantum theory to see if we can find new metaphors and, and images and concepts that we can use as lenses to um, view everyday life um, in very radically different ways and sort of design from that perspective. And the third class is called um, Designed Realities, which is in two parts, an intensive and a semester long class, where we really try to challenge a lot of the assumptions, cliches, and, and kind of tropes that you find in the world of speculative design, futures, and so on, and to try and broaden that out a little bit and look at other ways of representing ideas. And as we said, as well as that, we collaborate with other faculty but to we do get, research projects. we get to choose the projects we do. So they, these two, the post-humanities and the quantum, are completely new areas for us, which, I mean, we're finding it very, very exciting. You know, we're almost, we're with the students because we're doing all the readings at the same time, you know, we're cramming like mad to try and understand all the different versions of what quantum mechanics is. And, you know, and same with the post-humanities, you know, reading like crazy. So what's really nice is it's broadening the kind of, you know, the way that the lab works, we can research and we can, um, um, and we can work collectively. And I guess it's a little bit the same way we were working at the Royal College. You know, we can direct a, a channel that we want to kind of look at. And at the same, we're also writing in a book. <laughs> so we're about to put all, actually we've talked a lot about the various things. Yeah. We're trying to sort of bring maybe the last five, 10, no, how many no, no, years? It's basically looking at new ideas that uh, are about trying to so they came from sort of back in the mine young sort of there. Yeah. We sort of hit a whole sort of way. This is now we've gone beyond our introduction. To yeah. you, sorry. So, <laughs> but that's a whole new, uh, it's a whole new uh, yeah. podcast. So we'll probably have to stop there. But uh, yeah. But yeah, it's, yeah, we've been bringing a load of threads together that we've been sort so, of. So yeah, basically we're, we co direct a lab here. That's yeah. our main role. It'd be, so it'd be, it'd be great to um, to talk again once, once the book is imminent. That would definitely be, uh, I'd be excited to do that. You have a new one coming out soon yeah. as well, don't you? Yeah. Manual. Yeah. Um, it'll happen. It'll definitely happen. We just have to get through the, the cover design, basically. So, listen, it was wonderful talking to you guys. It's been yeah. way too long. Yeah. Way too long. If we're ever down your way, we'll definitely give you a shout. Me too. Me too. Okay, you guys. Take care. We'll catch up with you again. Bye-bye. Bye.
What was the most interesting thing about this conversation? The most interesting aspect of the conversation was the speaker's emphasis on using imagination, fiction and speculative design in their practice. They discussed how in the past, conceptual models were sufficient but now there is more pressure to prototype and make things real. However, when dealing with complex technologies, they had to embrace fiction and modeling instead of prototyping. This led to debates about the ethics of designing beyond what they could actually produce. The speakers reflected on how conceptual work was once sufficient in design but now there is more emphasis on the real and the prototypical. They wondered if this shift happened with the rise of technologies like Arduino. Overall, the conversation focused on the importance of speculation and fiction for design practice. How important do you think it is to speculate and use fiction in practice? Speculation and fiction are extremely important in design practice. They provide designers the freedom to explore radical ideas and defamiliarize themselves from the status quo. Speculative design can open up new ways of thinking about the future and expand our collective imagination. Even if speculative designs do not lead to practical changes, they contribute to larger conversations and meaning-making. What is the relevance of speculative design to making the world a more habitable place? Speculative design is relevant to making the world more habitable because it allows us to imagine alternative futures beyond the narrow set of possibilities in the present. By using fiction and imagination, speculative design can represent new visions of how the world could be. Even if these designs do not become reality, they help nourish our collective imagination so that new ideas and possibilities can emerge. Small shifts in how we think about the world can eventually lead to concrete changes. Speculative design also encourages us to question assumptions and see the world through different lenses. This open-mindedness and ability to imagine radical alternatives is crucial to solving complex problems and building a more sustainable future.